You're listening to episode 14 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Jeff Rothschild. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Uh, I'm really excited that you can join me today on this episode because you're going to learn a ton about having the proper diet, nutrition, things about protein bars, how to sleep better. And there's just a ton of information that Jeff Rothschild really amazed me with today. And I just want to get right into the information. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jeff. Hey, everybody. We're here with Jeff Rothschild, who is a registered dietitian. Um, He has some amazing clients that he has worked with, including Mike Bryan, Stefan Kozloff, and even James Valentine from Maroon 5. Jeff uh, has a master's degree in nutritional science, and he's also an NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist. He works with a lot of other athletes as well, including endurance athletes, boxers, swimmers, and uh, touring musicians. And I'm really excited to bring Jeff on to the show because there's a lot that we're not taking advantage of in regards to the field of nutrition and sleep and preparation for our performances, because a lot of us don't really put an emphasis on that, but it's extremely important and has a a very direct effect on our performance. Jeff also has a website uh, at www.eatsleep.fit, which has a lot of amazing uh, articles and resources and, and videos about this stuff, which I have really enjoyed checking out. And so, as I alluded to, Jeff's main points of interest are sports nutrition, uh, meal timing, intermittent fasting, and circadian rhythms. And he's also authored uh, several scientific papers uh, on these subjects, which is really fantastic because in his articles, he actually references them. So he has you know, concrete evidence when he's writing his articles. And so Jeff has also spent five years as the assistant tennis coach at CSU Los Angeles uh, in, in D2, I believe, Jeff? Yep. Great. And then uh, he's, he led them to uh, top 25 rankings uh, during his tenure there. Uh, he's also a two-time winner of uh, Assistant Coach of the Year for the West Region by the ITA. Um, and finally, Jeff also still competes as a cyclist and continues to play competitive tennis, which we all love to see. So, Jeff, uh, I just want to welcome you to the show, and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, no worries, Jeff. So, Jeff, let's just uh, start off by uh, just want to ask you about your background and how you got into the world of sports nutrition and working with uh, elite athletes and performers. Yeah, well, um, I played tennis my entire life since I was probably seven or eight years old, played competitive juniors. And, and um, so tennis is always something that's been a big part of my life. And, and nutrition has been an interest and a hobby as well for me. At a point, I decided to, to pursue it further, and, and I went back to school to get my master's degree in nutritional science, uh, became a registered dietitian. And while I was at school doing my master's as a grad student, I started uh, being the assistant coach at Cal State LA, which was really a great experience experience for me. Uh, I learned so much more than I could have imagined. 
both about tennis, about coaching, and and most importantly for what I do now is just got to work with so many tennis players uh, over the years, seeing how they, you know, on the nutrition side, seeing how they eat, seeing what their habits were. So that experience with 18 to 22 year old players for so long, um, you know, it's it's different. You can't you can't get that from a book. So uh, you know, what does it take to convince them to to drink this or that on the court or you know, um, you know, getting the right carbohydrate drinks or, or protein after a workout or all these kind of things just got so much firsthand experience of, of working with people. So after that, uh, then I moved on, started working in a private practice setting and started working with a lot of endurance athletes cause I was a little in that world and then met Mike Bryan through, through James Valentine and Maroon 5. So that was a really great connection. I've been a huge fan of the Bryan brothers as, as pretty much everyone else is. Um, I think my college tennis players got sick of seeing Brian Brothers videos at, uh, in the classroom and things like that of, of how to play doubles. Um, so that, that was really a thrill for me to, to first meet him, um, to meet Mike and, and start working together. Uh, it's been really great and that's kind of allowed me to, to meet some other people and, and um, really continue pursuing working with tennis players. So meeting Mike, you know, I, I got to see a lot of what some other professional tennis players were, how, how they were fueling and eating. And, and I, I started to realize that not just at the college level, but even at the more elite levels, how much money was being left on the table from a nutrition and fueling standpoint. Now, I, I, I know that's not true for everyone, but it's an awful lot of really high level players that are not doing, believe it or not, everything they could be, in my opinion, with, with their nutrition and fueling. So uh, as opposed to the, to the endurance world, to, to the pro cyclists, pro triathletes, are so on top of it for the most part. Um, but honestly, I, I found there's, there's kind of a, a knowledge gap in tennis. Um, so that's something I really, really enjoy. I enjoy working with tennis players because of that. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of room to gain. Well, yeah, Jeff, I mean, we appreciate all you're doing and just you know, this nutrition and sleep and other things that you're working on consulting uh, elite players with is just unbelievably important. I mean, I, I, I feel it, uh, I feel a huge difference, for example, when I get enough sleep, then I play tennis that same day. I mean, I remember just last week, I only got about five hours of sleep and then I, uh, I knew that I was going to have a, a crappy hitting session and I did and I just <laughs> couldn't perform, you know, so. It's really important, the nutrition, sleep, and things like that, because you really feel it on the court. A question for you is uh, regarding nutrition: is when when a client approaches you to help improve their diet, uh, what, to take us through kind of the first steps uh, that you go through with them. Yeah, sure. But actually, before that, I, I just wanted to talk about the, the sleep. And so it's not just in your imagination, or it's not just the placebo effect. There's been a few studies, not a ton of research in tennis players with sleep deprivation. But I did want to mention, I think it's so fascinating. So there was a, a study, a couple studies using high level British tennis players. So uh, people ages like 18 to 22. And they took one night of a, of a single or excuse me, they shortened their sleep for one night, so two hours less than normal. They measured their serving accuracy, and there was actually a 30% decrease in serving accuracy after just one night of, of shortened sleep. And as a follow-up to that, they actually gave the, the, the sleep-deprived tennis players caffeine, about the equivalent of a cup of coffee, and not only were there similar serving decreases uh, in the second study, but the, the caffeine didn't prevent the decline in accuracy. So that's just one example of just, just how... Uh, how, how much sleep can affect you. And so, so I think if, you know, if there was a, a pill that would, that would help you serve 30% more accurate, I think everyone would take that. But I think people underestimate the value of sleep or, you know, they, they talk, everyone acknowledges it verbally, but not enough people, I think, um, fully, fully appreciate it and put it into practice how important sleep is. So, so to answer now, to answer the other question, uh, kind of the, the first, the, the first thing you want, you want to do when you, uh, working with someone is figure out, 
well, obvious stuff, the back history, medication supplements, all that kind of stuff of what they're currently doing, really figure out what, what they're, well, who they are and what their goals are. So I would say, you know, if, if it's a tennis player, okay, uh, you know, where are they at nutritionally? So I would get a, a sense of how they sleep, what, what they eat in the morning, what, what their typical days look like and, and how they, what their nutrition knowledge is. I mean, some people is, you know, people might take for granted. Not everyone knows good sources of protein, carbohydrate and fat. So we might start with the basics with someone and some people are more hip, hip with that stuff. So it might, it might get, get more into the, the, the timing of the food or, or making sure they're getting enough on the court or things like that. So really to answer the question, the first thing is really get a, get a sense of who, who they are and what are their goals. You know, if it's a recreational tennis player that plays a couple times a week or, someone that just goes to the gym a few times a week as opposed to someone training four to six hours a day, you know. So uh, establishing this baseline of uh, who they are, like I said, where they're at nutritionally, what they know, um, and how their how their daily plan is currently. I definitely like that approach, Jeff, because, uh, you know, as you also stated on your website, I mean, you, you kind of follow a, like individualized approach because everybody's different, and so everybody reacts to certain foods differently, I'd imagine. But you know, that being said, if you could pick a, and this is a tough question, if you could pick an optimal diet, um, you know, could you, could you pick one out that's, that's out there? Or could you maybe describe it in some sense? Uh, sure. I mean, it's, I, I guess I wouldn't say I would pick one that's like a, a named diet, but basically if you think about, well, okay, unprocessed foods, right? That's, that should be a, uh, a given. And that by that, I mean, you know, things, things ideally you could buy that only have one ingredient. So, you know, a piece of chicken is not the same as chicken McNuggets, right? So people, <laughs> I think, lump chicken in one category, for example, but like, or fish sticks versus a piece of, piece of salmon. Those are completely different foods. Right. So um, that, that should be kind of assumed, but not everyone assumes that. So that, that's the baseline. If, if someone does nothing else but just get rid of processed foods, that's, that's a huge step forward. Then you want to think about let's say carbohydrate and protein needs. So protein, you want to make sure someone's getting enough protein. And there's ways to quantify that. Um, there's ranges that, that would be kind of acceptable for, for people to take it in. So on, the, on the, the first kind of level of things, you want to think, are they getting enough protein in overall? Then, then within that, there's the timing, but we can kind of put that on the side for now. So I want to make sure, okay, are they getting adequate protein? And that, if, if someone wants a number, you probably, for, for an active person, usually around it's, it's, we, we measure it in grams per kilogram of body weight. So you, we usually say about 1.6 grams of protein per day, per kilogram of body weight per day. So that, that's, you know, gives you an idea if you want to do the math. So assuming the person's getting enough protein, then we look at carbohydrate needs. And that's, that's probably the thing that changes the most with activity level because, uh, we're, we're, we get energy from carbohydrate and fat. Generally speaking, we're burning energy. We, it's some mix of carbohydrate and fat. Okay. So. If we're sitting, like you and I are just sitting here right now, or people listening, we're, we're burning predominantly fat, or it, it, this can vary actually, but generally speaking, you get more of your energy from fat when you're resting. And if we stood up and started walking, jogging, running up to a full sprint, we would rely increasingly on carbohydrate. Okay, so when you're playing full high intensity tennis or having a, you know, a, a spin class or, or doing something very high intensity, you're relying mostly on carbohydrate. Okay, so what does that mean? So for someone that never, someone that sits around, let's say sedentary person that just sits in an office all day and never gets their exercise intensity, so to speak, above, let's say 20%, you know, which is just, let's say walking, uh, they don't need a lot of carbohydrates. But someone who's exercising at a very high intensity, uh, for a number of hours per day, they are, they do need a lot of carbohydrate. So that's, that's really the biggest driver is, 
appropriate carbohydrate intake for your activity level. So, or another put put more simply, just earning your carbohydrates. Okay, and and so you can find the whole spectrum of of how people are with this. You can see people that don't earn their carbohydrates and eat way too many. You can see people that need that that actually under eat carbohydrate because they think it's bad or something. And when when you have people like I have someone training for an Ironman and they're afraid to eat carbohydrates. Um, you know, that, that's a problem and, and you want to get, so, so you want to find that appropriate level. Okay. And then the timing of that can have an effect too. But again, that's kind of second tier, uh, to, you know, to address your original question, it's really unprocessed foods, appropriate amount of protein and a, appropriate amount of carbohydrate. And then in turn fat, um, the fat usually kind of, I, I think works itself out if, if you're choosing unprocessed foods. Now that can be a problem if you're eating pizza and, and, you know, for, for, uh, fried foods all day. But if we're, if we're talking about a, a solid diet of, of, you know, clean food, uh, the fat, natural fats are just should, should usually work themselves out if you don't make an extra effort to, to restrict or, or to add them. That's great information, Jeff. And one uh, audience question that I guess I'll throw in right now is from Victor, um, related to diets. And so what I was kind of thinking around his question is, um, so like, what are some optimal, foods that we can eat, like maybe specifically with uh, carbohydrates, for example, you know, the night before when people have competitions, I hear some some of them say like, oh, I'm going to carb load and then they just uh, they inhale loads of pasta and things like that. So I'm just wondering uh, what are some good pre-match foods? Yeah. So the carb loading thing, I mean, it's it, that, that really got popularized in the 80s and, and there's you know, there, there's some reasoning behind it, but but uh, effectively, what sh- what could happen is you 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 don't need to go crazy with it because most likely, and, and maybe it's not the case for everyone, but most likely you've tapered down your exercise. So if you have a big tournament on a Saturday, most likely you're not really grinding hard on Friday. Maybe some people might, but you know, it would be sensible to periodize your training and even within the week so that you know Thursday maybe you have uh, uh, you know medium practice or Friday is is lighter if you're going to a big tournament. Right. You might or, or shortened uh, high efforts, but but, you know, you're not going to shouldn't be a total depleting effort on that Friday. Right. So by doing so, you're going to you're not going to burn as many carbs. Right. So by eating, you know, r- roughly the same, but doing less exercise, that should that really can work it out more or less for you. OK, so rice is great. You know, pasta. Well, I saw there was a, a question about gluten, too. And just, maybe we should just address that if, sure. if you want to. So some, I saw some, someone had asked about a, 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 what is gluten-free and, and – Yeah, whether it applies what, to everyone. Yeah, what's, what's the purpose of a gluten-free diet and does it apply to everyone or just certain people? So that, that's a good question. That's you know, such a, a contentious topic. Basically, just, just to give the, the, the two-minute overview, gluten, as many people know, is, is a, it's a protein found in wheat, rye, and barley. And in, in a number of people, which is really hard to quantify – it can cause problems. And I'm going to be purposely vague with it, but there's, there's a few different types of quote issues that gluten can cause. Um, celiac disease is the most popular, most, uh, well known. That's an autoimmune disease, but you can also have a wheat allergy, which is actually a different problem. The, the, the effect is the same. You, you can't, you shouldn't have wheat, but, uh, the actually response inside your body is different. And then there's actually a third one called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is like, if you don't fit into the first two, but there seems to be some, some issues still, um, then that, that would be considered non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So the, 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 the tricky thing is that there's no test, there's no one or two tests to determine absolutely if you should or should not be consuming gluten. Okay. So that, that's really, it would be simpler if, if it was a black and white yes or no. This, this is, you should have this or you shouldn't have this. Okay. But it can be a little trickier. So because of that, 
Um, a lot of people have gone on a gluten-free diet. Now, it's I, my, my sense, and it seems pretty safe to say that a lot of people are avoiding gluten that don't need to be. But at the same time, I believe there's a lot of people that are eating gluten that shouldn't be. Um, and again, I guess, uh, so anything with wheat, rye, or barley, so pastas, breads, you know, all these kind of things. Now, of course, there are gluten-free versions of these. Um, and the problem that people, you know, it, it, it can cause stomach distress. It can cause actually a number of things. It's, it's so many afflictions that are associated with gluten intolerances. Um, so to answer her original question, it doesn't apply to everyone. It definitely doesn't apply to everyone that should be on a gluten-free diet. A number of tennis players have have tried it. Um, you know, Novak, most famously, Lauren Davis. Her her father is William Davis. He wrote a book called Wheat Belly. Um, this is about I can off the top of my head think of about five or six other players that I know have tried it. Um, some still do it. It's something you could try for a couple of weeks. The thing is, you have to be really strict about it. You, just like you can't be half pregnant if you really want to see uh, if, if you should or should not be eating gluten you should avoid it strictly for at least two if not three weeks and then have like pizza or a bagel see how you feel and that's kind of the one simple way to do it or of course you can work with a healthcare practitioner um, so getting back to the pre-match meal or, or pre-tournament meal you could you could lean on rice potatoes that kind of thing fruits all good sources of carbohydrate oats um, are all gluten free if, if you want to you know avoid gluten if if the gluten is not a problem with you then yeah you can you can have breads and add pastas into the mix now again that doesn't mean eating like a a a, a whole vat of pasta but having some carbohydrate to, to fill up the gas tank is, is probably not a bad idea it's great jeff and i guess on that related note um you know a question that victor had that i'm curious about too is um you know if you can remember or maybe just make one up on the fly like maybe a typical diet uh a typical day of an athlete who who has a competition that day yeah i mean you know i think athletes are are not different than anyone else in a lot of ways you know i mean it's 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 nice to kind of think there's some magical thing breakfast you know the same same thing anyone else would eat really eggs could be eggs hash browns maybe some toast oatmeal um i mean honestly nothing that i'll say is very shocking um it really you know one one interesting thing is the timing of it so as as most people know with with professional tennis and 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 even some local tournaments probably you you might play third on or fourth on so it could be 3 p.m it could be 7 p.m right so that that does add uh adds an extra layer of complexity to to the food to your warm-up sessions things like that Uh, i talk about this in in the in the videos uh course as well um so I'll give you an example of, of uh, one player I worked with. He had a match. Uh, it was supposed to be around 4 p.m. And there was rain, so then it got pushed back. And it was then, then he was told, okay, he'd go on about 7. So around 6 o'clock, because um, he'd been waiting, 5.36, he had like a 6-inch sandwich, uh, like a sub. Then it turned out courts all couldn't get dried, and, and some other matches went long. So uh, it turned out the match just got pushed later and later. So so he uh, – he really should have had another half sandwich around seven when he found out he wasn't going to go on for a while. Match went on at 945. Hmm. He actually won the first set fairly easily, but the key points of this match in the, late in the second set came around 11, 11, 15 at night. Now, if you think back to this at 6 p.m., he had a sandwich, and this is a guy, you know, a, a full-size guy, who's so a six-inch sandwich is not a, a whole lot of food. So key points are around 11, 15. He actually managed to win the second set, but had he, had he lost that second set, you know, you're looking at a third set, the key points in the third set are probably around midnight. So then we're looking at six hours from the time you actually had any food, which wasn't even that much food. So so the match day timing can be super critical. Uh, so going in with a full tank of gas and then having the foods to snack on. So to get back to your question, uh, I'd say 
good, a solid breakfast, so some some carbs and, and protein, so oatmeal oatmeal and eggs can work well, maybe a, a shake or, or adding some chicken with, with in, into the mix, then it's, it's going to depend if, you, if you're going to warm up. Um, like Mike and Bob like to uh, usually warm up like three hours before the match is supposed to start. Um, so really depends on when your start time is. If you can get a, a big lunch in, that'd be good. But then you might you, you don't want to have uh, too much food in your stomach when you play, right? So I, I, I guess I feel like I'm kind of dodging the question. But really, there, there's, there's no magic foods, rice, chicken, vegetables, that kind of stuff. California roll, maybe some some of the guys like, uh, you know, it's 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 the timing and, and making sure you have a full tank of gas without without feeling too full to to you know play your best tennis. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I really like again, you know, your individualistic approach and also just the experimentation which you uh, alluded to in the gluten diet. Just kind of to try out, you know, eat clean foods, I think, and then just figure out what suits you best, and then you know go from there. Um, yeah. Sorry to cut you off. That, that you know that and that's. That's again part, part of the reason I, I put the the book and the video course together is so people understand really the I, I want to give a framework for how to how to manage this stuff because no two situations are the same no two players are the same uh, you know no two tournament days wind up being the same so rather than just like if I list okay 9 a.m. it's it's oatmeal and, and eggs and then noon is a turkey sandwich and and you know whatever there's there's no um, you know you're not able to 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 use that information and, and understand why. Why is it oatmeal and eggs? Well, you know, we want carbs and protein, okay? So if you understand the concepts and, and have a framework from which to work with all this stuff, then you can apply it, at, you know, individually as, as, as is appropriate. Right, exactly, Jeff. Uh, and I, I do want to give a shout out to uh, Jeff's course and ebook that he has. I know based on his website, he has a lot of fantastic information. And then you can also um, go to his website and uh, check out the course. And later on, we'll uh, talk about the uh, course and, and ebook more in depth and give you a link where you can uh, check that out. Um, check them out, rather. But Jeff, I also do want to delve slightly uh, more into the timing aspect. And I know, as we've already discussed, uh, nothing is black and white. But do you have uh, maybe a rough timeline of how many hours or minutes before we should be uh, eating before our, our matches? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, that that's so uh, variable with people more than almost anything else in the, um, kind of the, that we'll talk about. And the reason is some people just can't have any food in their stomach. They just feel gross and, and just, it just doesn't work for them. And, and honestly, some people like, like having almost a full stomach. So from that standpoint, definitely got to, got to experiment and see, you know, what, what works for you. But then with that being said, I, I would say a big meal about three hours before and then having a small snack. So let's say, you know, maybe it's, uh, uh let's say Chipotle that, that works. It's one of my favorite places, especially because people are traveling so much for tournaments, whether it's just into a different city or town or, or in different, uh, you know, state or country. Um, that's just such a, a good go-to a rice, a, you know, a bowl of rice, some chicken or, or whatever protein you want, maybe double protein, salsa, guacamole. You know, I think that's just a, a great meal for, for anyone, especially a tennis player. So let's say your match is at 3 PM. So maybe at, at noon, you might have something like that. You know, chicken and rice is just such an easy example to use. Then that'll keep you full. And maybe beforehand, you know, a, a, a few dates, uh, raisins, banana, something like that, or a little bit of sports drink, something to just kind of top you up. It's going to depend also on how hot it is. Like, so if you're drinking things, we can get into the, the whole as, uh, unique aspects of playing in the heat. But um, I would say, you know, three hours before and then have snacks as needed. Uh, if you're in the college setting, that's another set of, you know, circumstances. Um, if we think about a, a typical college, you know, what, what the time of day for college, 
it's even more, I think, critical because let, let's, for example, let's say the, the tenant the match is at one thirty. Okay, so around noon, the players might need to be at the team area. Uh, twelve, it's, you know, hang out, do the thing. Twelve fifteen, you might start like a foam roller, uh, that kind of stuff. On court warm up would probably be about twelve thirty. Match start at one thirty. You know, doubles would be first, then singles would start around two thirty to three. And again, we're looking at about four, seven, seven to eight hours from the time you probably had your last meal to that critical time and the close matches are decided. So it's managing your, your match day food timing is so critical. And again, so it's a big being, having the tank as filled up, filled up as you can without, without, uh, impairing performance and then being smart throughout the day with it. Um, again, you, you never know if there's rain delays, if there's even just tournament delays at any time, you know, if again, a three, 3 PM match at a tournament, how often are you going on the court right at 3 p.m. At, at junior or collegiate tournaments? It just it rarely happens. Yeah, that's great information again, Jeff. And that actually reminds me of a slightly funny story, I guess, where uh, they, I played college tennis as well uh, at UMBC, and we had a match at Boston University. And uh, like you said, you know, the matches can take a while, and, and you play doubles and singles. So I remember uh, we went to Subway for lunch, and then I had half of uh, of my full 12-inch sub, and then um, by by the beginning of the third set of my singles match, I was so hungry that I I just sat there and during the break and had the second half of my six inch sub. And uh, my coach <laughs> yeah. was uh, wondering what the hell I was doing and giving me <laughs> gave me a weird look. But uh, yeah. I needed the fuel, so <laughs> you, you you did, you really did. And and at the, if you were so desperate to eat a sub on the on the court, then you must have really <laughs> needed it. And so you got to ask, you know, do, do you think you were playing your best tennis, like in the second set, for example, or you know, I'm sure the the sub probably helped you, but you know, then you're you're if if you're not uh, fueling properly, and uh, then you, you can't you can't play your best tennis. And then and you know, just to add on to that, if we're thinking in the college example again, you know, uh, let's say it's a home match, and 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 so someone has to drive to school or drive to campus or, or um, you know, maybe the dining hall doesn't open until uh, noon, and so they have to eat earlier. You know, there there could be a real large gap uh, on these match days, and and it would kind of used to drive me crazy as a coach when players would would not be eating enough because you just know when you really need them the most is at the end of the match right when when the match is is even and the last singles match is on i mean that's really what you're practicing for and preparing for is in those critical times uh 6-0 6-0 match either way you know it doesn't really matter what you eat right right i mean it's such a shame to train so hard and then to not do the the last few of what um alistair uh, mccaw who i had on the show a couple episodes ago says are the one percent and i know you you also talk about that as well to just you know, to train so hard and then you can't perform just because you didn't uh, eat properly and sleep properly. Yeah, um, absolutely. And just to, to, sorry to interrupt again, the, that's know. a great, that was a great interview. So anyone who hasn't listened to that, I would highly suggest that he's, he's an uh, incredible guy, incredible coach. So definitely check out that, that uh, episode. Thanks. I really appreciate the uh, endorsement, Jeff. And uh, th- this one is shaping up to be an amazing one as well. Um, I'm also going to sprinkle in a quick question that I just received from Paul and um, going with the snack route. He's just wondering about your view on protein bars and whether they're effective. Yeah, uh, I think the term protein bar is is just is such a blanket term for any kind of bar that's packed in a you know individually wrapped. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I uh, you know for example something like a Lara bar, which I actually am a big fan of Lara bars as snacks. Um, they're just like one one of them is just cashews and dates, right? So there's it's not a whole lot of protein to be had there. It's not to say it's a bad thing. It's just you know, again, just the, the, uh, it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, I think that they have utility. I think they're great for, let's say, snacks 
especially like for, for again these college or, or high school players as an example like in between classes or during classes you know that they, they're they're convenient um, on the court I'm not a huge fan and the reason is because on the court you really want you really need carbohydrate and, and electrolytes um, but l- if we just focus on the carbohydrate the energy aspect um, certain things are associated with increased GI discomfort meaning like stomach issues and things and that those are uh, fat fiber and, and to some degree protein so a bar like a, a quest quest makes a great bar it's got protein you know and, and it's actually low carb so um you, you actually want the carbohydrates so the things that kind of would make a good bar for for an everyday snack like if you're at work or at school don't make a good bar on the tennis court in my mind mm-hmm. maybe between matches like a, between singles and doubles or something or you know there's potentially some utility there so as a whole i think they're they're actually they're, they're you know they can be fine and, and of course there's so many different ones so finding the right one i, I do like you can bars for potentially actually you can bars i think would be great for a, a pre-match like you just want something small to, to kind of keep you filled up um but uh yeah so so i think in general they're good i i don't love them on the court during a match again because they're just hard they if, if there's enough uh you know a lot of them have nuts and things so there's going to be some fat and some fiber in them which makes them slower to digest again which is normally a good thing but on the court you don't want that you actually just want something quick uh, uh that digests quickly so yeah uh that's that's kind of how i feel about those awesome thanks jeff and uh one last quick uh nutrition question for now until we move on to uh supplements does it matter how many meals we have a day ah uh, good question that's another contentious topic Within a within a range, it doesn't really matter. And what I mean by that is like three to five, two to two to five, two to six, three to six, somewhere in there. It's it's very flexible. Now it can matter for a tennis player who's training. So the timing of that then becomes a little bit more critical. So again, who are you and what are your goals? That was the first real question we talked about. That's so important here. And I guess I realize anyone listening to this will be a tennis player, but maybe there's parents um, or, or coaches that aren't actively playing. So a number of meals are going to be helpful if you're training hard. Absolutely, probably four meals. I would say three main meals and a snack. Uh, so depending, but again, that depends on when your training is, right? If you train in the morning, if you train in the afternoon, maybe after your training you just eat eat dinner. So, or maybe you you train and then there's a gap a few hours until dinner. So a, a shake or something would be would be good there. So from a purely human being standpoint, health standpoint, this the idea that you need to eat multiple times, like five small meals or six small meals through the day, being better than three meals uh it's just not true okay arguably they're they're roughly in in a broad sense it's whatever you prefer um but if someone really prefers a, a if a non-athlete prefers to eat twice a day there's actually a, there's some good utility and benefit in there so again the context is is so big with all of this stuff um that it that i, I can't understate that enough great well okay uh, oh, sorry I can't overstate that enough. <laughs> uh, I, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. uh, that's awesome. No, that's great because uh, that's obviously, like as you mentioned, been debated, and a lot of people say, "Oh, you should just break it down to a ton of meals." But um, yeah, that was yeah. Great. Actually, and so I'll, I'll add, it's having a ton of meals does not speed up your metabolism, and and in fact, fasting, short term fasting, actually up up till uh, I think it's about sixty hours of fasting, your metabolism actually increases. So. Uh, that's just something people love to think they're going to speed up with their metabolism by by eating more meals, but that's just just not the case. Yeah, awesome. 
Yeah, I, I just can't wait to uh, listen to this over again and take notes on it. Uh, just so much <laughs> awesome information, Jeff. So now uh, moving on to supplements, um, I guess I'll ask a general question, which is, um, you know, what's your view on supplements? Are they effective? Or do you think people should be using them? Yeah, I mean, again, huge broad question with so much context and 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 you know uh, so many caveats and subtleties. Right. In general, there's there's a number of reasons. Let's actually let's just start here. There's a there's a number of reasons to supplement. So it could be in, inadequate dietary intake. So like most many people don't get enough magnesium, for example, or probiotics. So people hear about like probiotics take take you know uh, the live the good bacteria. So if you're not eating fermented foods, so that could be yogurt, it could be sauerkraut or kimchi or natto. If you're not eating those on a semi-regular basis, then probiotic is probably a pretty good supplement for you. Now, with that being said, there's a number of different kind of probiotics, so then it gets a lot more tricky. But just as far as a reason to supplement, you know, inadequate dietary intake is is actually there's some legit things. Some people just don't like fish; they're just not going to eat fish. So fish oil is probably a good supplement. Now, if someone eats fish a few times a week, especially the fatty fish like salmon or sardines, then they don't need fish oil. Right. Uh, so, so it's, again, this, 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 who are you and what, what are your goals? Is just, it's just so important. Then we have increased needs due to training. So, someone that's training many hours a day, whether it's an endurance athlete or tennis player, they, they're going to need more B vitamins. They're going to need more iron, zinc, carbohydrates. So then there, there's some, some utility in supplementing uh, there. Now, you know, you could argue they're, they're going to eat more food and, and they're going to get some more of that through the diet, but there, there could be some utility in supplementing when, when you're really increasing your training needs. Then you have recovery benefits. So again, things like carbohydrate and protein can help recovery. Um, other things like tart cherry juice, uh, these things you can all get from food, but also if it's a hot day and you've just had like a, a, a crazy hard interval workout or, or you know, feeding a ton of, of balls on the court or, or running sprints, most people don't, don't want to look at food. So there, there's some benefit to, to taking supplements, you know, in the form of a shake or otherwise, uh, in that, in that sense. And then there's, there are performance benefits. So, you know, some people say if, if it actually works, it's banned, or if, you know, if it's not banned, it doesn't really work to, to make you better. But there are definitely, I would say 100%, well, I never want to say 100%, but there are definitely supplements that are shown to be effective, uh, in certain types of exercise situations. Okay. So there, there are absolutely supplements that could help repeated sprint ability, for example, or increasing power output or, or beetroot juice. Actually, that's a food or you can take it as a supplement. That's a good example that can, um, lower heart rate during exercise by, by getting more blood to their muscles. But creatine and baking, uh, baking soda, those are two that really come to mind for, for high intensity exercise. So these are things that can benefit, um, whether you'd see it in a match is is questionable. In in and by that I mean, you know, if it's if it's a if it's a one sided match, none of the stuff really matters. I, I don't you know a whole lot. But if if we're talking about close matches, now we're getting into the clay court season. You've got long grindy kind of matches. Um, I think there is definitely some utility for some of these supplements. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, sorry about that. I was just gonna say I I know you you named quite a few supplements, and you know it is an individualized approach, but. If you were to name maybe like two supplements that you think maybe tennis players should keep in their bag or, you know, consider taking, yeah. what, what would they be? I, I would say, and, and now, again, even we need to define tennis players because, uh, you know, there's there's the 70-year-old, uh, right, right. you know, club player versus like, you know, a, a pro player. So if, if we're talking sure. about a, a high-level college, you know, ju- high-level, you know, 16 or 18-year-old junior, or we're talking about pros, um, I would say... Two that can then have a whole lot of utility would be creatine and and bicarbonate, which is actually baking soda. So creatine and baking soda, uh, which are two extremely cheap, uh, extremely relatively safe 
I, I should say extremely safe supplements. Uh, I can talk briefly a, a little bit about each of those. Um, sure. Starting with baking soda, uh, most people don't know it. it so it, it's a buffer, right? So if you think back to chemistry class, you have acids and bases. So when we are playing a hard, hard tennis, you feel the, the, the burning in your legs, right? So if you're running side to side, feeding balls, uh, so I guess that's one way to qualify it is if you're playing hard enough where you f- you're really burning in your legs from from the acid is is a, a limiting factor then baking soda could be helpful. Okay, so w- what it does uh, again it so it, it's actually it's buffering it's like it's an electrolyte it's, it's HCO three minus and it kind of buffers the, the H plus for the chemistry nerds but uh, effectively it's it's a buffer in your blood. Okay, the downside of it. Is it can cause GI distress, and, and so there's some ways to take it and minimize that. But if you take too much, you'll run straight to the bathroom. Okay, so <laughs> that that that's not good, and it tastes terrible. <laughs> but there are some ways to use it, and and you you don't want to exceed you know the maximum doses. So the the typical dose is about 200 to 300 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So again, this is where working with a healthcare practitioner, a dietitian, or a sports dietitian can be really helpful. So knowing about how, you know the appropriate amounts to take. Um, there's about four four point six to, to five grams per teaspoon. So uh, most people, for a hundred and fifty pound athlete, uh, you take about four and a half teaspoons of of baking soda spread over three doses, about an hour apart. Okay, so um, it's it's pretty when, when it works uh, when people do it with and that don't have GI distress, it actually works amazingly well. So if you're in the gym, or again if you're on uh, having a tennis practice, or if if you're uh, you know, in a match, the, in the right, especially the right kind of match, it can really, really be of benefit. Uh, again, the downside is if you take too much, you will run straight to the bathroom probably a number of times. So it's not appropriate for everyone. I guess I should add in some disclaimers here. It's not appropriate for everyone, but it is a, a well-studied and shown to be effective benefit of short uh, duration, repeated high-intensity activity. Right. And then just to clarify, Jeff, for those who don't know about GI distress, uh, is that just pretty much, uh, going to the bathroom? That's kind of the worst of it. You might feel like a <laughs> stomach ache or bloating, but mostly it's like it goes right through you. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So, so that's, so that's one. Um, and again, you know, I think part of the reason people, it isn't more widespread and people don't talk about it more, um, is just because it's not appropriate for everyone. It's definitely not, you know, again, when, when, when it, the physical aspect has to be the limiting factor in your, in your training and in your playing to, for this really to be of benefit. So, and that's absolutely not the case for everyone. And it's absolutely not the case for every practice. So, you know, some practices are more technical, you're working on your serve or, or you know, technique and, and it's not uh, an issue. And then some matches are really where you're grinding and, or, and, and practices. So then it can be a benefit. Does that, does that kind of make sense with, with that? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And it's uh, very interesting because, I mean, as you mentioned, I, I really have never thought of taking uh, baking soda. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. and, like I said, it, it tastes terrible. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's some hipper, some ways to take it. But um, that, so again, to answer the question, that is absolutely something that I have my, my guys try. And, and again, it's not for everyone. And it's not even the guys that do well with it. It's not for every day. But it's, it, it's definitely a tool that I want them to have. Um, and then creatine is the other one and that, so, so baking soda can work acutely manage you, you take it a couple, a few doses and, you know, before you play and, and you'll feel the difference. Creatine takes some time to build up in your body, uh, a few weeks usually of, of taking it. It, it. The, you know, th- there's a lot of myths surrounding creatine. It's, I don't know how it got this bad rap, uh, mm-hmm. at some point, but, um, you know, to, to give some perspective, the, the International Society of Sports Nutrition refers to it as the as the most effective supplement for increasing high intensity exercise capacity. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, that, that's, that speaks volumes. I mean, what is tennis? It's high intensity exercise repeated over and over. So it's going to improve again, your repeated sprint ability, your power output, also maybe even your recovery from injury. It's even been shown to decrease injury incidence. So there's, there's a lot of benefit. Now it's, it is found in our diet. It's found in meat. So vegetarians would tend to benefit more from it. Taking a small dose, like three to five grams a day. Uh, so, sometimes on these containers that they'll say like to take 20 grams a day and that's, uh, called a loading dose. It's, it's really not necessary. It just takes a little bit longer to build up in your body if, if you're taking a small dose each day. Um, and there's different forms of it. So creatine monohydrate is the, the cheapest and, and the most effective form. There's other, if people are looking in the store, like these other types of creatine that are, you know, say they increase absorption or this or that and the other, but th there's not really any good research showing that anything is superior to, to the monohydrate, which is in fact the cheapest. Um, again, there, there's myths with that. Um, there's really no, no real scientific evidence that either short-term or long-term use has any effects when, when taken in healthy people. Now, so again, if you have health issues, you absolutely want to consult with a healthcare practitioner with this stuff. Um, for, for, and then I guess the next question that would come up is, well, how about teenagers? Um, and again, uh, uh, according to the, the best and latest, the latest best, uh, research recommendations, that if, if the following stipulations are met, then, uh, creatine should be safe. So if it's the, if the athlete has passed puberty, if they're training hard, um, if, if they're, you know, on a regular basis, that, that would, that would actually benefit from, from that type of supplement. They already have a good diet. If there's not kidney disease, the parents are on board. If it's supervised by a, a athletic trainer or, or a medical practitioner, um, and they're taking quality supplements at the right dosage. So if all that is kind of, uh, if all those boxes are checked, then it can be an effective supplement. Again, there's, there's, there's some fear about it that, that, uh, I, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, no, I just really appreciate that because, um, <laughs> unfortunately I have been surrounded by people who talk about it in a fearful way. And so for that reason, I actually haven't really been taking it. Uh, I guess at one point I, I was kind of a meathead in some sense. I love lifting. I still do, but, uh, I was considering taking it and then I kind of got talked out of it, but, um, this will definitely make me explore possibly using creatine. And, and on that note, um, do you think, creatine is is used a lot on the tour i don't know i think a lot of people are afraid of it and then i think a lot of people so now the, the next big big thing we need to talk about with supplements is the the dark side of it and that is the the you know the positive drug tests and, and things like that so right. um there is a huge a huge uh issue with supplement quality a huge issue and so that i really want to make that clear that supplements that it is the wild west of uh, in the world of supplements okay um <laughs> you know uh, the studies have shown that, that a contamination rate with stimulants and, and or steroids of 14 to 18% or even higher. So, okay, so th this can occur, like, this can be the accidental contamination in, in a factory or there can be deliberate spiking. Okay, so, but the, the, I guess the good news for tennis players is most, the, the biggest problem area for supplements is in the bodybuilding world, the fat burner and the sexual enhancement. So, mm. or, or I should say diet, you know, weight, weight loss, weight loss, bodybuilding, sexual enhancement. This is where the, the, the biggest problems lie of, of adding, uh, stimulants that are not on the label. So there's a huge number of, of supplements that you could buy, you know, at most stores or online that the label says one thing. And then there is a complete, you know, either added things that are not listed or the things that are supposed to be in there are not in there. So this is a, a major, major problem. Okay, and that, that also, I, I want to really make that clear. So you cannot just go buy any supplement and think it's fine. The good news is that there are a few resources that players, parents, coaches can use to find good supplements. Okay, and, and any sports dietitian uh, would, should be aware of this. So if you're working with someone, but for your own uh, uh, knowledge, I'll give you a, a few kind of the steps I would take 
when uh, looking for a supplement or, or uh, analyzing a supplement that someone else might be using. Right. So there's a, there's a few places. There's there's two kind of uh, the the biggest two that 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 are third parties that test supplements for banned substances and and for label accuracy. Okay, so that means you know uh, the the biggest one, arguably the biggest is NSF certified for sport. So I can give you the link for that. So you go NSF for sport or NS, NSFsport.com and and they're again a, a, they're paid to uh, they're an independent company that the supplement company would pay to to certify the product. They look into the manufacturing process where the, the supplements are sourced from. You know the all all these things they test it for label accuracy and again to be sure for there's not any banned substances. And then so if if you can get a supplement that has this NSF certified for sport logo on it then you know that's the best you can do. Now, there's never a 100% guarantee that a supplement is not going to be you know, contaminated with something, so you are going at your own risk. But the best current, the best current way is to go uh, to that for something that has been certified independently by one of these couple, kind of quote, gold standard of, of uh, supplement testing. The other one is called Informed Sport. So the same thing, they go to informsport.com, and both these websites will have lists of their certified products, so you can search, let's say you wanted to search for creatine or, or whatever, whey protein, um, you can search, and then you can get a list of all the brands that have been certified by these companies uh, that are essentially safe for athletes, okay? Then there's, uh, you know, it, beyond that, there's a couple of other resources. I'll mention one other one, uh, something called Aegis Shield, and that's A-E-G-I-S-S-H-I-E-L-D, Aegis Shield. They, they actually just analyze labels, so they have a database of pretty much every product on the market. They have a mobile app, so you can just scan a barcode. But you can put in your product and see, okay, is this is this allowed? But the important thing is this is only based on the label claims, right? So it doesn't address the fact that there's there could be things unlabeled. So I use this to, to rule out things rather than to say, okay, this is good. And what, what I mean by that is some, some things like a, a GNC supplement. One, one actually pro athlete came to me and said oh, their, their, their trainer, their strength trainer said to get this uh, – GNC, Mega Men, testosterone boost or something, uh, uh, healthy testosterone multivitamin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that actually has a banned substance, uh, banned substance in it wow. on the label. So you put that into this and it's got a big long label. There's a ton of things in this, in this pack. You put that into this Age of Shield website and it shows banned ingredients. So that, that, that automatically just says, okay, no, we can't use that. Right. So again, it's really helpful for ruling out things, but I would lean on the NSF for sport and informed sport for saying, okay, yeah, this is actually free of, of banned substances. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Yeah, that's fantastic, Jeff. I mean, I actually just Googled uh, all the websites you mentioned, and it they make it really easy. For example, uh, yeah, you know, the first one, NSF Sport, it has a big picture that says certified products, and then you click on it, and then yeah, way. It's, it's super easy. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then um, actually, I guess the one other website uh, related to this we should mention is uh, Global Dro GlobalDRO.com, and that's um, Drug Reference Online is what it stands for, Dro. And so what you do, you choose your uh, the country, it, it basically it's used to see if your medications are banned in a sport. Okay, so you 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 again, it's a very easy to navigate website. You put your your uh, your medication in, and it sh you put the country where you bought it. And now it's all, it only includes uh, four countries: Canada, the UK, United States, and Japan. But 
Um, for most of your listeners, that's probably suitable. And it tells you it's either prohibited or allowed and also in competition or out of competition. So for example, something like Adderall, and, and I guess we should take a step back. I know not many people will never be drug tested, but it, it, for those that are interested or coaches or, or, you know, the, the pros, um, then this is, this is important information. Um, so something like Adderall is actually allowed out of competition, but actually not allowed in competition. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're drug tested and you have Adderall in your system, then that's actually, that's a sanction. Okay. Now in contrast, uh, something like meldonium. So that's been in the news. Um, that's now, if you put, if you had put that medication into this, um, website, you'd see that it's prohibited in and out of competition. Right. Yeah. I mean, these are really amazing resources, uh, that really will enhance everyone's knowledge of what they're taking and whether they can take it. Um, just really fantastic, Jeff. Um, and I guess since you mentioned meldonium, uh, you know, if you could just kind of talk briefly about what it is, what it does, and maybe if you have any opinion on the, the issue regarding, uh, Sharapova being banned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, basically, from what I know, it, it inhibits fat oxidation, actually, and, and promotes carbohydrate oxidation. And I think that is the mechanism by which it helps performance. I know it's extremely widespread. Um, people, I, I, I had, uh, I had talked to a Russian tennis player who just said like, oh, that's, she was so surprised that it was a problem for Maria because, uh, this is like a, a, not a pro, but just a, uh, actually a college player, uh, mm-hmm. because we take this, we, t- you know, I took this as like in high school, I mean, we just took it like a vitamin. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, I don't know what will come of it, uh, as of right now, it's it, originally all, all these athletes were getting sanctioned and now, uh, Wada's saying that it's possible that, that, uh, they don't know how long it stays in your system. So people might have stopped using it before January 1st. So I guess that's all I can comment on about that. But again, if you went to this website and you put it in as of January 1st, you would know that, that it's not allowed. So I think that's the, the real, the moral of the story here is have these references, uh, resources available. Um, so it's, you, you avoid problems like that. Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, we had this podcast last year, maybe if uh, Sharapova contacted you, <laughs> she would have been good. <laughs> she would have been good. Use one of the websites. <laughs> But, um, and so I guess a quick question for you. I know, again, I mean, it, you really have to look at what you're deficient at in terms of vitamins or not. But do you believe that multivitamins should be taken daily and if they're effective? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, another contentious topic. Um, yeah. I think, you know, it's easy to say, well, we're not deficient. You know, we get like in what, you know, in the Western countries, we get, we have so much food and there's, you know, a food abundance. But, uh, it's when, when, when you look at research that, that quantifies intake, there's actually a number of, of, uh, vitamins and minerals that people can tend to be deficient in. Like, I'm forgetting this, the stats, but probably roughly half the people don't get enough magnesium, for example. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely some utility. Uh, and then there's the question of, it's a whole nother topic, but like, is the soil depleted? So the vitamin content and mineral content of our foods may be not what it used to be for our grandparents. Um, that's, you know, that's a whole nother issue. But, and then there's different types of multivitamins. So not all multi- multivitamins are the same. And this is a big issue. I always, you know, a lot of times when people come in and they have on their list that they take a multivitamin, I always want to ask what kind, because I want to know, you know, for example, again, we'll use magnesium as, as an example. Uh, there's, you know, a whole bunch of different forms of magnesium, same thing with zinc and, and some other things. So, not all forms are absorbed the same way. So you get better absorption from some types. I mean, g- generally speaking, you, you could say that the cheaper multivitamins use the cheaper ingredients, um, you know, a Flintstones vitamin compared to like <laughs> something from Thorn or, you know, so um, I do think there's utility in it for a hard training athlete. Um, there's one I like from uh, Thorn, uh, which is branded as Exos. Uh, it is NSF certified for sport. It's a, a quality multivitamin and, and I have definitely some of my guys taking that. 
again, it's people that are training very intensely, regularly, traveling a lot, you know, things that really take hits on your immune system. Um, I think there's, there's utility. I don't think there's too many downsides. Um, but if, if someone offered me a, a cheap, like a, you know, a gummy multivitamin, like if he's, if they said here, here's a case of them, I, I don't think I would take them. So, um, kind of it's again, context when it comes to multivitamins. Well, I'm, I'm sad that I'm going to have to throw away my, uh, Flintstone <laughs> vitamins for kids. So it's, it's really a shame. <laughs> I don't take that. Um, so fantastic, Jeff. Um, so now I guess we can, uh, move on to, uh, sleep. Uh, as we, you know, you discussed a bit before, it's just, uh, extremely important. And there's been studies out there, uh, about, uh, the negative effects. And I guess if you could maybe talk about any other negative effects that you didn't mention and if we, uh, you know, how, how we can promote more uh, consistent and deeper sleep. Okay. Yeah. So sleep super important. As we mentioned before, the, the one study showed a decrease in serving accuracy. It's another interesting study that was done at Stanford on the women's tennis team. They had their, their players extend their sleep or at least the time they spent in bed for the 10 hours per night for five to six weeks. Now, most people that would just be really tough to do. Um, but not surprisingly, the extra sleep did result in huge important improvements in their performance. Uh, it, they measured things like sprinting drills. So they got, they, they were able to complete a sprinting drill like eight, 8% faster and increase their serving accuracy, improved in hitting depth drills. So, and also reporting a large, uh, decrease in daytime sleepiness as well as improved well-being. So, you know, th- there's definitely, th- there's no, there's really no doubt that most people aren't sleeping enough and, and that getting more sleep can improve performance. Um, I saw a quote from Roger Federer once that he said, if I don't sleep 11 to 12 hours per day, it's not right. Uh, I mean that that's super impressive. I'm, I'm guessing he's including naps in there, um, but so many other athletes you can you can find them talking about sleep, and it's just it's just so so important from a health standpoint too. Super super important uh, blood sugar control. Actually, when when you don't sleep enough, your your stress hormones are higher. Uh, you're gonna eat more actually, and and choose hot like sweet a higher pre- a greater preference for sweets. Um, so you effectively if you don't sleep enough, you're gonna eat more of the wrong things. Okay. So, so it's just, it's just so huge for, and this is tennis players, recreational tennis players, uh, you know, not sedentary people. It's just super huge. So I I think, okay, I, I, you know, I've, I guess I've convinced people to sleep more at this point, or at least they feel like they need to. I think there, there's a number of, there's kind of a couple issues that I see that come up. People either, they, either they're not tired or they just say, I have, I have so many things to do. I have, you know, homework or I have work or this, this and that. So, you know, it's, it's either that I have too many things to do to go to bed at a reasonable time or I'm just not tired. So if we, if we look at the, you know, being too busy, I think it's, it's, it's important to, to make it a priority, right? So if it's, let's use a college student as an example, you know, maybe it's doing your homework in between classes instead of waiting till after dinner or, or a high school student or, you know, anyone, uh, prioritizing the sleep so that at, let's say it's 1030, uh, I want to go to sleep. So that means by 930, I need to like take a shower and, and, and start winding down. So it's not doing work after nine or 930. That's, you know, for example. Making it enough of a priority, I can pretty much guarantee if I paid you a million dollars to sleep by 10 p.m., you would do it, right? <laughs> so, you know, so that means, and and some would say, sure, well, you're not, but I but I need to do work or whatever. Well, it's just again setting it as the right priority. Okay, so if 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 it mattered enough to you, you will figure out how to get to sleep by 10 or 10:30 or whatever it, it is for you. Okay, so. That's prioritizing it. Then I think there's there's steps to take that a lot of people are missing to 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 be sleepier, right? To make it easier to fall asleep. So one is just dimming the lights at night. The light and dark alteration is what tells our body, you know, it's day or night, obviously, right? So, but when when we're staring at a giant TV screen at night or have the lights on in our house or hotel room, 
how does our body know it's nighttime? It doesn't really, right? It's, it's unnatural for us to be in artificial light. So uh, dimming the lights, uh, dimming the screen on your computer. There's a program called Flux that you can put on your computer, F-L-U-X. Mm-hmm. It's a free download. Uh, it effectively takes the blue light, which is the, the type of light, uh, uh, the blue spectrum of light. It takes it out of your screen you know, as the sun sets. So gradually, your screen starts to change color. Uh, so for anyone that's, except if you're like editing photos and need color or, or video editor, Everyone else should absolutely have this on their computers. It goes for laptops or, or desktops. Um, it's not available for iPods, or, or, excuse me, iPads or, or iPhones. But uh, the new iOS does have kind of a version of this where it dims the light at night. So that's that should hopefully start becoming standard for people. So less light into your eyes at night. Maybe it's setting a TV turnoff time of 9 p.m. or a computer screen turnoff time. You know these these things. And getting enough daytime light, actually. So for tennis players, it's not an issue. But if, if people are listening that maybe a, it's a parent or, or something that's you know, not, not playing outside, more daytime light will help actually you fall asleep. So if, if you think of like the extreme example, like someone who's in like a moderately lit office uh, and then they come home and it's like a, the lights are on the house, that their light exposure throughout the whole day is almost flatlined. Okay, whereas in nature, if you were camping, anyone who's gone camping probably knows that it's so easy to fall asleep. And it's not just because you've been out walking around all day. It's actually because of the light. So you should, again, naturally get a ton of light exposure during the daytime, which tennis players playing outside would get, uh, and then zero light at night. That's, that's natural. That's how we're wired. So we've kind of gotten in the way of that with technology. So getting back to that. So, uh, again, if, if, uh, tennis players, not a problem, but, but parents, coaches, or, or someone who's inside all day, getting more outside time is really important. That's fantastic, Jeff. Uh, and yeah, those tools are great. I use uh, Flux. I don't know if it's F.Lux or Flux, but um, it's a great program. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I'm not really sure. I'll definitely link to it, though. Cool. And then also another great program that I like to use, I've been using recently, it's actually an app called Rewire. And it's basically like a habit-based app. So it'll uh, send you a reminder regarding like whatever goal you have. So basically what I did was I said, my goal is to go to bed by 1130 because I'm a habitual uh, late sleeper, especially with, um, you know, producing all this stuff like podcasts and, and articles. So I said it. And then the, the thing that's most encouraging is it basically connects a, a green line. So like it's almost like marking a calendar and X's. So it really encourages you to keep your habit up. So, you know, I, I really want to go to bed because if I don't go to bed, I'm going to break the chain. And I'll have to start all over again. So I just want to put that yeah. out there as like a really good app that I think that will really encourage people to uh, have good habits and that I'm utilizing specifically for uh, going to bed earlier. Um, so it's it's really helped out. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. And so, uh, Jeff, I guess I want to ask you like another um, kind of question that deals with uh, different populations. And basically, I want to ask you about sleep and how it may vary among different populations such as maybe males versus females or uh, athlete versus sedentary and just in general like what populations need more sleep than others yeah that's a good question um males and females i i don't really know if i can speak to that but definitely younger people need more sleep people that are growing uh teenagers and, and of course younger uh, athletes need more sleep right the, re- the the sleep is where these repair processes happening uh for our, our body our brain it's, it's just super super critical there's a, a sleep researcher and, and she says to sleep as much as you can without getting divorced or fired. You know, um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good advice. I think more practically for most people sleeping enough to, to not need to, uh, an alarm to wake up. You should be able to wake up naturally. I mean, just, just the, the basic concept of an alarm. It's obviously, it, it's interesting to me when I, when I, uh, ask 
you know, a lot of times college players like, okay, do you, you know, do you sleep enough? And people think people that think they sleep enough, but then need an alarm to wake up. I mean, that that's it's just a huge uh, sign that you're not sleeping enough, right? So that would be a good goal. Catch um, naps are helpful, and also catch up sleep on the weekends is beneficial. Um, I know teenagers would love to hear that. Uh, you know, it's better than not getting it for sure. Uh, ideally, you know, being in a regular routine of getting sufficient sleep is is the best. But um, yeah, I think it, you, it can change even day to day with people. Um, but get to sleep at basically the right time and and wake up when your body you know is ready to wake up and it, it, you know at the risk of oversimplifying it I, I think it can be that simple so younger people athletes training certainly need need more but what that number is is is, is pretty tough to say for sure one thing that came to mind when you mentioned uh like sleeping on the weekends to make up sleep i've heard from some people who say that you can't really make up sleep and i'm just wondering like what your thoughts are on that and if there's maybe like limitations to that statement yeah, yeah, no, you you can't like make up 100 percent for for a week of bad, you know, five days of bad sleep for, in two days. But there's definitely, absolutely, some research I've seen that shows it is better to to get that you know catch up sleep than not. There's actually a, an interesting term called social jet lag. So it, it refers to the like the difference in weekdays and weekends of of when you're sleeping and and uh, you, we're kind of jet lagging ourselves through the week when we when we don't get enough sleep and then stay up. Maybe some people stay up later on weekends. You might people might go out or get you know. Um, so there's a whole lot of, it's a fascinating subject there, but, um, again, I I think the basic point is it's catch up sleep is better than not getting it, but it's not as good as getting full sleep daily. Right. Awesome. Awesome. And so Jeff, when me and you were, uh, talking online a bit, uh, and when, uh, as far as from what I've read in your articles and stuff, you do have like quite a bit of knowledge of, uh, the difference between males and females when it comes to, uh, to playing and kind of like different physiological effects and stuff like that. So maybe if you could speak a bit to that for our audience. Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating topic, something I've really been exploring more in the past year or so, uh, a couple of years. Um, yeah, guys and girls are different. Okay. And, uh, and that's such an obvious statement. Um, in, in basic, physiology that the hormones is the, is the big difference this affects so many things I, I mentioned earlier a few minutes ago about we, we burn fat and carbohydrate during exercise right and so at moderate exercise let's say you're jogging you're going to burn some mix of fat and carbohydrate generally speaking women actually rely more on fat as a percentage thing than, than than men do uh who rely a little bit more on carbohydrate right so there's those differences so that can affect fueling to some degree but but really what, what's even more fascinating and I think where there's the most gain to get as a coach and as a player and, and and for doing what I do is looking at the monthly cycle okay so actually let me take one more step before that so so girls also have increased needs for iron because they, uh, they they lose that monthly athletes in general need more iron uh, also vegetarians uh, but female. So if, if you have a female vegetarian athlete, they're, they're definitely need to really be on top of it with, with their iron intake. So you have a f- the few vitamins and minerals that they're tend to be more deficient in females, but the, then getting back to the cycle stuff. So I guess I'll give a, a basic background. There's a typical monthly cycle is 28 days. You can broadly think of it in two halves. So, and I'll, I often refer to it just front half and back half. Ovulation takes place in the middle. Technically, the, the front half is the follicular phase and the, the back half is the luteal phase, but front half, back half just is easier. We can look at a few things that happen, or excuse me, a few changes to better understand what our athletes might need on the court. And so, and then I'll, I'll give you an example at the end of this, but our body temperature increases at ovulation, not our, excuse me, women's body temperatures increases at ovulation. Uh, not a, a whole lot, but, but a, there is a significant increase. And that stays elevated for about seven to 14 days, seven to 10 days. 
Okay, so kind of keep that in mind. Then we have the, the hormone fluctuations. Basically, uh, estrogen comes up in the front half of the month and then comes back down, and then estrogen and progesterone come up in the back half of the month. If a girl is not having a cycle, that's uh, a canary in a coal mine, as I would say, uh, that something else might be going on. Okay, so there's something called the female athlete triad, which is actually, and it's maybe considered not just for females now, but it relates to, to low energy intake, uh, menstrual dysfunction, and then low bone density. So that's an issue with females. Um, but getting back to, to, sorry, I keep jumping around here. You get me excited talking about all this stuff, you see. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so, so back to like, let's say, so the practical effects of the cycle, and then we'll get to the triad. So the fluid needs actually change. Uh, and this is all subtle, but it's, it's enough, I believe, to, to make some important differences. Um, so fluid needs change. Uh, during the back half of the month. So, and, and these uh, uh, effects are particularly pronounced around days like 19 through 24. So this is, and so all this stuff we're talking about, this is when it's really going to be a factor. It's the mid-luteal phase, days 19 through 24 of a regular 28-day cycle. So they actually need to drink more and actually use more salt. Um, the, the fluid retention is, is affected. And so in order to keep your same blood volume, plasma volume is called, you actually, it requires more fluid and more salt. Also, exercise intensity. So then your, your, the body temperature is elevated in the back half of the month, right? As I said, it, it goes up at ovulation in the middle and stays elevated for 7 to 14 days. So if you're starting out with an elevated body temperature, what's going to happen when you're exercising in the heat? I mean, you're, you're going to feel the heat more, right? So cooling down uh, your body during and after exercise becomes more critical. And then compounding with that, like I just said, I, you, you actually need to drink more fluids in that phase. So you're hotter and you're, you're your blood volume is not as high, so you're not going to sweat as efficiently. So it's, it's kind of a, a recipe for getting faster time to fatigues at higher intensities. Okay, mm -hmm. so actually decreasing the exercise intensity during those five days, um, and you could work on exercise like endurance more or technique, but the better time for the real high intensity training is actually the front half of the month. Okay, and there's an, a really interesting study that, that had women exercising. This was a strength training study, but there's actually a couple of them. Every other day, in the front half of the month and one time a week in the back half of the month or every third day throughout the whole month. And actually the, the ones doing the every other day in the front half and the once a week in the back half actually had better gains after two months. So you, you might see it, girls might feel it or coaches might see it intuitively like, okay, there's certain days where it's just harder to, to, to really hit that high gear. Um, but I think you take that then and, and structure your training that way, right? So again, days one through 14, you can really you know get the high intensity stuff um, that, that 19 through 24 do more technique, you know, it's where you're working on your serves or, you know, not, it's not the time for feeding line drills back, uh, back and forth all day. Right. And same thing with your workouts. Maybe it's more, um, you affect it. You could change it differently, your strength workouts or, or your, or your, uh, cardio sessions, um, accordingly. So I would do again, some low intensity, longer duration stuff, and then saving the high intensity sprints for, for the front half of the month. Does that all kind of make sense? I know I'm talking about a lot. No, I mean, I really appreciate this. It's really fascinating information about the differences. And I know that a lot of female tennis players, well, all of our female tennis players and also especially coaches uh, who coach female teams and players are really going to appreciate all this information. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. That actually reminded me. So I, I should give you actually a practical example. So there, there was um, a girl that I work with and I, I wasn't there at the time, but I, she had a tournament and, and she... Um, she, she won her match, but she was like cramping pretty, pretty badly, like, like mm -hmm. muscle cramps, you know, on, on, um, 
this one particular match. It was hot, but it wasn't terribly hot. But she dealing with, struggled through the match. And then the, the next day, she was actually fine. She was a little fatigued, but she was actually totally fine. And and so a week or two later, um, when I was talking to her, I, I kind of guessed which day I said, you know, did you get your you know period th- this day, like uh, the, the next week or whatever it was to doing the math. And, and it was like, yeah. So that it turned out that she she was probably on day, you know, 23 or 24 on on the that day of the tournament and then the next day actually her kind of the hormone levels changed enough that it, it was a non-issue right so um it's it's subtle but i think and then knowing ahead of time um actually there's a, a team that i work with and they, they're uh going to arizona to play and and i told the coach i said you know just figure out who's on it's because it's gonna be hot there and they were coming from uh, i'm in la but it, it happened to be cold weather here so um the adaptation process which we, we could get into but uh for the heat but i said okay fi- you know any any of the ones that are that are in that week of that you know 19 through 24 just have them use extra salt and and, and extra some extra water extra salt and, and pay really more attention to cooling your body and and you know these are small things and, and they might not make an impact on a match again that's pretty one-sided but the subtle differences can can um i mean the one percent like like you were saying uh can have an effect so the other, the other big thing with again it, with in, in this um, area for me is is the, as I said the athlete triad. So these are three things that often are seen together: low energy intake, menstrual dysfunction, and, and low bone density. Okay, so low energy intake can often cause menstrual dysfunction, meaning you stop getting your period, or or it's longer or shorter. Or there's there's some issues. So that could relate to to just taking too little food in. Okay, then when when you stop having regular uh, menstrual function, your bone density can go down. Okay. And, and that's bad because our peak accrual, uh, is about, I think about 18 years old. So you're, you're basically after about 18, I think somewhere 18 to 20 years old, you're, you're just kind of hanging on to your bone density. So you're accruing it mostly as a teenager. And so if, if you're, if you have a teenage tennis player who's, who's not, uh, if their hormones are out of whack and they're not, they're, they're not, um, you know, having a cycle and not, not building up bone density properly, that's going to affect them through their whole life because we don't keep building bone density through our whole life. We just, we maintain it. Wow. That's uh, it's a lot so, to take in, but that's so, so I managed to freak everyone out in the course of <laughs> a, few, uh, a few topics we're talking about, yeah, <laughs> but I guess to tie it in a little bit, this, you know, I, I re-explain all this stuff in, in the book and in the course. And this is why, because as you see, so I, I'm, I'm going to guess that a lot of people, um, and this is just, we're just scratching the surface here, but a lot of people haven't thought about all this stuff as it relates to competitive tennis. And so I wanted to really create a framework for people to to kind of walk through this at their own pace and and kind of ha- really wrap their head around this. So again, just like we talked about a, a while ago, I can tell someone, you know, or I can tell you what what Mike Bryan is eating throughout the day, but if you don't understand the framework with why he's eating this and that at a certain time, then it won't make any sense. I can tell the coach, uh, the college coach, to to say, okay, you know, if if any of the girls are on on day, you know, nineteen through twenty four, make sure they're getting extra salt, extra water, and and cooling like ice on the changeovers or whatever um you know that that's fine but then you you want to be able to understand um you know what's going on and why and and um you know things like that well that's that's good stuff jeff you know i mike brian called you the encyclopedia of knowledge and uh, he wasn't kidding (laughs) so uh, it's just wonderful you know as i hear you speak to just I, i can really tell your passion and you know your huge knowledge and uh you know about the game and it's fantastic um so I do want to shift a bit uh, to what you talked about a little bit uh, with males versus females, but uh, dealing with the heat. So I guess the main question for this area is how do we prepare to handle the heat and also what should we be uh, intaking? Uh, yeah, pretty much best yeah. sports drinks and stuff. 
Yeah. So um, again, it's it's a, it can get to be a pretty deep topic, but in the basic sense, we acclimate to the heat. We do get adapted. So what that means, like for for example, we start sweating sooner and we start sweating less salty. Okay. So if you took someone who's in the middle of winter in, in northern Canada and you just put them in a tropical climate, they're gonna sweat very you know more salty than they would if they had been living there for a month or even a couple of weeks. Okay. So that's an adaptation to the heat. And that's really important because if we sweat out too much salt, then that can lead to more likely to be uh, cramping and, and um, we have trouble controlling our blood volume, which affects a whole other number of things downstream. So the, the, sorry to, I don't, I hope I don't get too technical with the stuff. Basically we want to acclimatize, which takes up to a couple weeks. Okay. Now that's not always, uh, uh, you know, we don't always have that option. For the example I just gave the teams going from cold weather to hot weather, they're just, you're just stuck in, you might have a day or two and then you're playing, right? Uh, for a, you know in a conference tournament or something Stefan Kozlov he's playing a tournament in kind of cold weather right now he had just spent a couple of weeks in 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 tropical weather getting these adaptations now and I just told him you know look you've lost now a lot of these heat adaptations so wherever he's going next um, you know you have to kind of re reacclimate so that that's a that's a big thing which you don't always have control over if you can get to a place early enough to get acclimated that's that's ideal then then we have sweating okay so we lose heat from in a few different ways from our body, there's, there's radiation and convection and, and evaporation or conduction, I should say. Um, basically, some heat just kind of you feel if you put your hand next to someone that you can feel the heat coming off their body. Okay, so that's one way we lose heat, and that doesn't work if the temperature is the same as our body, right? So if, if it's like 98 degrees out, we're not going to lose any heat that way because there's no there's no concentration gradient, right? And then we're talking about a heat, let's say 90 or above. So, so that, that mechanism for losing heat is, is pretty much out. Sweat is a big thing. Importantly, sweating doesn't cool us by the sweating itself. It's from the evaporation of the sweat. So that means if a, on a dry day, that's why dry heat feels nicer than humid heat, right? So the humidity has, has a lot to do with how effective our sweating is. So if, the, if, the, uh, if there's a lot of moisture in the air, if you're at like 80 or 90% humidity, there's, again, a lot, not a big concentration gradient. So there's not, the sweat is really going to drip off us. If sweat that falls off you doesn't really cool you. So it needs to be evaporated. So in the, the humid weather, sweat is also less effective. So it's, if it's 95 or 98 and humid, you're, you're, it's really, really, really tough as anyone who's experienced that would know. So our, our sweat though is the main mechanism for cooling us. So let's say we're, uh, in kind of just normal heat, maybe moderate humidity, I should say. So you're going to be sweating. Now sweat rates can be over three liters per hour. They can be on average, let's say for, for, well, I don't want to give an average, but it can be anywhere from like one to three and a half liters per hour of sweat that you lose. And there's ways to measure this. The simplest, you know, it's a little rough, but basically if you wanted to Weigh yourself wearing minimal clothing before you started playing and then weigh yourself after, after you've dried off and, and same minimal clothing that's, that's not wet. Um, you'll see a, a difference in body weight. Okay. You can then add to that how many ounces you drank and you can see effectively, you know, more or less what your sweat rate is. Now it's a bit of a pain. You have to have, you know, a scale or a digital scale and it needs to be kind of near the tennis court because if you eat, it's going to change it. But that's a good idea because the best recommendations for how much to drink are based on not losing more than about 2% of your body weight. So if for, again, a 150-pound person, 2% of your body weight is, what, 3 pounds? So you don't want to be less than 147 at the end of your workout if you start at 150, okay? Now, importantly, we can only absorb about 1 to maybe 1.5 liters of fluid per hour. So if you're sweating 3 liters per hour and absorbing only about 1 liter per hour, 
what's going to happen, right? There's going to be a huge, there's going to be a the compounding deficit. deficit. Yep. Yeah, that, that compounds over time. Okay, so the first hour, it's, you know, not a big deal. But if you consider, let's say you have an, a warm-up, and I know people in the heat usually shorten their warm-up, but you might have a 45-minute warm-up between your dynamic warm-up and your on-court warm-up or whatever, then your match, I mean, you're going to be really in a deficit. So it's super important to come into a match with the tank filled up, both with food uh, and, and with, with your hydration. Now, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, you can't overcompensate. So if you just drink, like, you say, I'm going to drink seven gallons of water before my match, you're going to just pee that out. So your body is really good about fluid balance. So you can't just drink, drink, drink if you've hit your saturation point. But again, you've got to know that each hour you're going to be compounding in a deficit. Okay, so there are, though, luckily things you can do to improve the absorption of fluids. And so having carbohydrate and sodium or electrolytes, uh, which is basically sodium, in a drink, you're going to absorb that better than if you just drank plain water. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest pet peeves, you know, mistakes that I see people make, and again, we're talking about someone training very hard or playing very hard. So when you look at the pros, you see Nadal just like dripping, you know, it's like a faucet font when he's about to serve, it's just <laughs> losing so much water, right? So when I see people, and I've seen some pros, a number of pros just drinking water on the court, I want to just punch the TV screen uh, because there's just so, and then you see guys like cramping and, and all this stuff, people are just drinking plain water. This is a problem, okay, right? If, if you need sodium to better absorb that water, plus your sweat, your sodium losses can be huge. Um, again, I don't want to get too, too uh, into the math here, but you lose about, on average, about uh, one to two grams per liter of sodium in your sweat. And if you're sweating at a rate of two to three liters per hour, then you could easily be losing four grams per hour. I know that, that there's no context for people. But most, on average diet, the dietary recommendations are to take in about two to three grams of sodium per day. So, but you could easily be losing four grams an hour on the tennis court, right? So you see there's a huge imbalance there. And now this will compound over days. If you're in a tournament and you're playing every day, you're going to be depleted at the end of the first day. And then, you, you know, you, you can replete to a degree, but I think you have to be really aggressive with the, the sodium repletion uh, in the heat both before and after and during tennis to restock these losses. So on the court, you want carbohydrate to drink. And again, I, I need to qualify. We're, we're talking about competitive, you know, 16-year-old and older, probably a uh, uh, high-level tennis player. Sodium and carbohydrate in your drink, okay? My problem with sports drinks, or most sports drinks, like Gatorade, is not the sugar. I think, I've, you know, on the court, the sugar is actually really good for you. I know people will probably, that will probably irritate some people. You, you will definitely perform better if you're doing exhaustive exercise that's longer than about an hour and a half with, let's say, Gatorade compared to water. My problem is actually they include too little sodium, especially for the heat. So Gatorade, for example, makes a a Gatorade endurance formula, which has higher sodium. You can add a pinch of salt to your sports drinks. There are some other brands that have more sodium geared towards the endurance athletes usually. Um, So there are ways to handle that. But adequate sodium and fluids is really important. Do you have like a favorite sports drink that's out there? You know, I, I don't, uh, honestly, uh, and I really individualize it for people. I kind of sometimes, uh, like with the endurance athletes, there's a number. I might have three or four that I like, and I'll say, okay, buy one individual pack of X, Y, and Z and try them out and see what you think because I know that these four are all going to give the person what they need that's appropriate. Um, the, the sports drink that, that Mike and Bob use is actually totally different than what Stefan Kozlov uses, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, to a degree, uh, that's because – singles and doubles and, and the time of matches, uh, non-grand slam matches for doubles are, are rarely longer than an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're obviously running, uh, you know, it's, it's different than, than singles, whereas he's 
got something different and because he's playing longer matches he actually is interesting he actually just played a couple weeks ago played a, a match that was or he won a match that was four hours and nine minutes long wow. a three-set match so wow. <laughs> I, I, was, I was super super proud of him and, and happy that he was you know fueling his way through that and and uh uh so that was wild so again yeah so the totally different needs for those two guys so and actually another tennis player um alex uh he got a different sports drink for him as well and so to some degree it's the person has to like it so they drink it they'll like the flavor um, i want it to include enough sodium or if it doesn't i want i, I need to you know i kind of think of it in modular terms we, we want a certain amount of fluid carbohydrate and sodium per hour mike and bob like using these certain gels on the court a lot of guys like dates so okay i know okay roughly you can drink a bottle of this per hour or two bottles an hour in my head, I'm thinking, okay, it's going to give them this much sodium, and that's okay in normal weather. If it's going to be in the heat, we'll add this one extra thing, you know, things like that. So I really think um, in, in, in modular terms as far as getting the right thing for the right people. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And so, so you, you know, obviously salt is hugely important, but we also do need some sugar because I know like a lot of people, they try to completely take sugar out of their diet. So, right. Yeah. So again, the C word here, context, right. um, who are you and what your goals are. Sugar out of your diet, well, actually, a lot of things. So sugar and sodium are great examples of thing of recommendations for, quote, normal people or sedentary people that are completely opposite for athletes. Sugar out of your diet is a great thing, except know that sugar during hard exercise. So most research is done in cyclists or, or using having people cycle or, or running just from the ease of use from a measuring standpoint um, and, and the steady state aspect of it. So, for example, if you're cycling at a 60 or 70 percent intensity, you will absolutely, uh, sorry, after a certain point, usually about an hour, an hour and a half, exercise longer than that, you will absolutely perform better with taking in some sugar. And there's, you know, there's, again, the nuances and the caveats of what blends of sugars and, and how much and, and things like that. But hard exercise that lasts a certain duration will benefit from carbohydrate. Sugar is probably the, the best uh, when taken in the right concentration, it's going to be absorbed well and quickly. And fiber, again, like I mentioned earlier, fiber is great for our health, great for you know slowing down absorption of food, but you don't want it when you're on the court because it's going to slow down the absorption of food, which is the opposite of what you want, right? So uh, you know, people are sick of me saying this, but you got to really consider the situation and the unique needs. Well, fantastic, Jeff. Uh, a lot of just amazing information again. So one thing I want to talk about, which I'm personally excited to check out uh, soon, is you do have a, uh, as you mentioned, a video course on nutrition, and you also have an ebook out on nutrition. And, uh, you know, just judging by all the work you've put in uh, and all the information you've given us, I know it's uh, an amazing product, uh, both of them. So can you talk a bit about what those products are about and what, what the purpose of them are? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for all that. Um, basically, uh, like I said, as we can kind of get a sense from, from, from what we've been talking about, I feel like there's so many things that tennis players at all levels aren't doing that they could be. And it's just a, a knowledge gap. I mean, I don't blame someone for not knowing how much sodium they lose per hour. You know, I mean, this is what I do for a living and I've studied this in school and, you know, this is, I spend basically all my time thinking about this stuff. So why should someone know how much sodium they need? That's why I put together really a framework for someone to understand what's going on. And I, I purposely wrote very, um, I believe, I think simply and easy to understand. So to, to get the points across without, it's not, it's not a science book. I purpose, you know, I made sure to keep it really clear so someone could understand, like, should they try and reduce sugar or is it time when it's really beneficial? Um, and the same thing, like sodium, those are just such great examples. Do your sports drinks contain enough of each? 
you know, how would you know? So I include like, for example, some different sports drinks and how to kind of figure out how much you need. I just wanted something uh, really tangible for, you know, people to have and, and to learn this stuff. I want people to, to understand this, to benefit from this, this knowledge. You know, it's, it's, um, I get so much pleasure in seeing people, you know, that I work with. It could be, you know, Mike and Bob winning a tournament, or it could be someone finishing their first triathlon. I mean, they're, they're, I get so much pleasure with knowing that people are using these things to feel good and to perform and doing, you know, at their own level, you know, so whether it's, if it's a junior player or a parent that just wants to understand this stuff, they'll hopefully understand the, uh, the context. Do I need extra sodium when it's 50 degrees out? Probably not. Understanding really a, a framework to just not leave so much money on the table, especially for the competitive players. Yeah, and I think making, you know, the investment like that on your products would be, uh, I mean, give back tenfold or, or more because, you know, it's, it's so important to be able to perform to your maximum capability. And you absolutely cannot do that without knowing the proper way to eat and to the, the best diet and things like that. So yeah, and, and, the, yeah, and the other thing, so I guess just to uh, briefly go over, I mean, I, I set it up to really give like, a, I wanted to give a complete overview. So I have, you know, these chapters or sections of the course about general food choices. So just what you should eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner, how to pick smart foods, sleep, we talk about, of course, um, post-workout, you know, the importance of getting the, the right stuff after your workout, what's taken on the court, uh, like the timing of your food uh, on a match day, like a lot of the stuff we've kind of alluded to parts of it. Um, supplements, I talk about supplement safety, so how to find the steps of, again, what we talked, similar to what we talked about, which supplements actually work. So there's a few others that I didn't mention here that, that can be beneficial. Uh, the stuff, the girl stuff, as I like to call it all, you know, that stuff for the female players, which again, is not just appropriate for females, but anyone who works with the female. So any coach playing in the heat, travel also, that's another big one, how to minimize jet lag. You know, these guys travel around. I don't think there's any sport that travels around the world as much as professional tennis. Um, but even, you know, junior tennis, you got going across, you know, West Coast to East Coast, these kind of things, how to minimize jet lag. One thing I do with some of my players, um, I had one guy going from LA, played a few tournaments in Israel, and then I uh, was going to Canada. So what I did was I get the flight info and figure out like the best way to more quickly adapt to the jet lag. So that, that's a really tough transition, LA to Israel. Uh, it's just, um, I think it's 10 hours east or less. So, so it's, it's extremely far, obviously. And so that really leaves you upside down. And it would take, usually it takes about a day per time to, time zone to adapt. But I've kind of, uh, through my research in, in circadian rhythms and, and the food timing, I've kind of figured out ways to, to actually speed up this process. So I'll, I'll get the flight itinerary. Um, I did this recently with a cyclist. There's a, a pro cyclist who was going to Germany. So, uh, you know, I might say, okay, t- take a melatonin in, in the airport lounge, even though if it might be like 1 p.m. here, you have to take a melatonin to get the process, start these things going, or, or you know, and, uh, I might say sleep for the first six hours of the flight and then eat at the end or, or, or only eat during the first five hours and then go to sleep. And, you know, it's about getting on your time zones quicker at this airport, you know, eat a lot because I don't want to eat on the next flight and things to, to really speed up the process. And, and again, they're, they're subtle, but it's definitely a 1% or more that can, that can make the difference of, of having a few good practices before your tournament or spending the first three days completely upside down because you're waking up at two in the morning. Um, so, uh, the, uh, yeah, so there's a, a section on, on, on the travel and some of the tips for that. That's awesome. Yeah. And especially in a sport where it's just like super razor thin margins. I mean, this stuff is going <laughs> to help you so much with, uh, with your performance. Um, and, and Jeff, so, uh, where can we find those products? Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, my website, as you mentioned, is, uh, eatsleep.fit, www.eatsleep.fit. Um, and so there's a tab, you can see more about me, you can see some of the people I work with, there's some, some blog posts, there's a, actually have a couple of samples, 
a couple sample videos that are, are very similar to what's in the video course um, on there in the, in the blog section. There's and then there's there's a, a, a link to to go to the the book and the course. Um, also, what I can do uh, is give you a, a direct link, and that would offer a uh, 50% discount if people buy it through your show notes for this show. I'd be happy to do that. Sweet. Uh, for the course, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's like, it's really awesome of you. I mean, your products I've seen, they're already like priced really generously. And then the, you know, with the 50% off, that's, that's a really nice uh, offer from you. So I'll definitely include that in the show notes. Uh, and you can check out these show notes at uh, tennisfiles.com slash 14. And then I'm going to include the link for, uh, for Jeff's products. So that, that's awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Um, yeah. Jeff, you know, I mean, you've been on for uh, such a long time speaking with us, and that just shows your passion and how much of a nice guy you are. And I, if it's okay, I'm just gonna give you like a couple, just like rapid fire questions that you can even you can even answer sure. with like a yes or no or something. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, maybe not the first one, <laughs> but um. So okay, so what are maybe like one or two foods or supplements that that can help speed up the recovery process? Uh, chocolate milk is probably the the king. Sweet. Uh, if you're okay, if you're okay with dairy, if it works well for you, it's it's got a great mix of carbohydrate, protein, and electrolytes. So it's it's hard to match. Yeah. Awesome. And um, <clears throat> as far as uh, carbs, protein, fat ratio, um, <laughs> I feel like I know the answer to this, but you know, somebody was asking and they were discussing it in a thread in Tennis Warehouse uh, about uh, the ratio. Does sixty twenty twenty sound? good or does that no i think i think it's you 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 find the adequate protein intake so about 1.6 grams of protein per day per kilogram of body weight um for those that are in pounds it's your pounds divided by 2.2 to get kilograms and then uh you should be able to eat to satiety but eat uh, change your uh, your carbohydrate intake according to your activity level so again if you're in if you're having high intensity workouts eat more carbs if you're off or injured or just kind of having low intensity workouts um, or less of them, then eat less carbs. So you can't pick a ratio. Um, it should change uh, every day depending on, you know, if, if you were to really analyze a perfect diet, I think every day would, would be a little bit different. The, the protein, though, should stay relatively stable. And, the, pro, and the carbon fat should, should kind of seesaw depending on the activity. Got it. Awesome. And then um, – Alcohol, I know people uh, tolerate different amounts, but is it acceptable to maybe have a glass for the night before? Or? Yeah, you know, I, I just saw something recently. Rafa was having, I think it was either wine or beer or something. I know a number of athletes, uh, pros that have like beer at afterwards, you know, not, even if they're competing against the next day. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, I think it screws up your sleep. So I think it's best avoided uh, in the evening. So I'll, I'll leave that you know, to person definitely, you know, I imagine one, one glass of wine should be fine. If someone gets drunk, you know, if we're talking like college world, uh, it definitely <laughs> can improve, it can impair your muscle, uh, your recovery and, and, and your muscle, you know, improvements, things like that. So yeah, I'm gonna, I guess, uh, punt on that one. Sure. No, that sounds good. Um, <laughs> and Jeff, so where can our audience find you? Uh, we know we, that we can find you on eatsleep.fit uh, on your awesome website. And, uh, but also like social media, like are you on social media? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, Instagram, I don't, I don't post a whole lot, but I, I do post some things. Uh, eat, eat sleep fit, and um, Facebook is is just my name, and there's there's links to both those at the bottom of the 
of the website. So, um, yeah, happy to connect, um, happy to talk about this stuff, um, happy to work with people. So uh, I guess I, I should include, I, I you know, I, I see people, I, I work in, uh, I have an office in, in Los Angeles and Santa Monica, California, but I do also work with people via Skype. Um, and, and so it's definitely, uh, if, if that's something people are interested in, feel free to get in touch. Yeah, definitely consider, uh, you know, getting consultation from Jeff. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much knowledge you have on the subject. And also, uh, Jeff, I love to ask uh, our guests uh, this uh, last question, which is what's one piece of advice you can uh, give our audience to help them uh, improve their uh, performance? Yeah, I think sleep is probably the biggest thing. Um, and, and to maybe just give a little bit better answer than that is, is probably reduce artificial light at night if we want to really get more practical. For health and performance, the, the, I think artificial light at night is, is really uh, not good. And so the more you can reduce that, uh, the better you're going to be for short-term and long-term health. Fantastic, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely feeling uh, positive effects of that. But um, Jeff, I just want to thank you uh, so much. You've been extremely kind to, uh, to speak with me for uh, such a long time. And um, you know, I really, really appreciate all the knowledge that you've given us. And I really encourage everybody to check out Jeff's website at eatsleep.fit and to definitely check out um, his ebook and course. Uh, again, I'll have the links to the course and ebook on tennisfiles.com slash 14. And thanks for the generous discount for our, our audience, Jeff. And uh, really appreciate it. And I hope to, uh, you know, talk to you soon someday. Absolutely. I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Appreciate it. I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I hope you learned a ton from my interview with Jeff, and I really encourage you to check out Jeff's website at eatsleep.fit and to also check out his ebook and his course. Jeff was kind enough to provide me with a special coupon code for you guys to use if you'd like to check out his course. So if you go to tennisfiles.com slash Jeff, uh, you'll be led straight to Jeff's course and you will get a really nice uh, discount on Jeff's course. So uh, definitely check that out if you're interested. And I would really appreciate it if you guys could leave uh, me some feedback on the show. So if you could leave uh, a review on iTunes or on whatever um, podcast app that you use, uh, that would be great. And, you know, if you want to email me personally, uh, that would be awesome. I'm at mirabon at tennisfiles.com, and I make it a point to answer every single email that I receive. And I really do enjoy receiving all the emails from you guys and all the really nice words. And, you know, also thank you for making it through the interview. I mean, there was a chock full of information, but I do realize that it was pretty long. Uh, I think it's the longest episode that I've had so far. So if you have any feedback about the length as well, definitely let me know. I do want to give a shout out to two people. Uh, I got an email from Ram today uh, thanking me for all the articles and podcasts that I've done and how it's helped his game. And so Ram, uh, you know, kudos to you for uh, being a passionate player and tuning into the show and trying to learn as much as you can. I definitely really appreciate that. And I also want to give a shout out to... Uh, username Pesta, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, but uh, for the really kind iTunes review. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to get the best guests that I can. Uh, you know, even if some of them don't respond, I definitely keep pushing to find the guests that I think can really help uh, our listeners. 
help them improve their game and, and learn about the really crucial things that they want to know about. And so again, you know, just contact me about any things that you want to learn about because the purpose of this podcast and my website is just to help you guys. So um, I really enjoy doing that and getting all, you know, all the wonderful feedback from you guys. So you know, all the best to you guys and just keep improving your game. And uh, again, thanks for all the support. And we're going to keep going, keep getting the best guests we can. And I'm going to keep trying to put the best information out there for you guys. So you know, have a wonderful week. And I will see you next week on another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.